0: Well, good morning again, and that's one of our members at Christ Community, our Leawood campus, Mark Wayne, and uh, he does a wonderful job, doesn't he? Communicating the beginning of our yeah. Let's give him a hand. I don't know if he's here this morning, but uh, <clears throat> a remarkable artist, and uh, he captures, I think, beautifully our new series, because often we think of Jesus in rather vanilla tones, but Jesus says things that startle us. He He jolts us out of any sense of safety or comfortability. He challenges us in ways that surprise us. So I want to again welcome you here this morning, and we are starting this new series. Uh, You might just pray for my voice. I guess I gave it all first service. Hopefully I have some left. Um, But I'm just very excited about this 10-week expiration. Uh, We are going to look at some of the most startling statements of Jesus. Sometimes when we think of Jesus, we think of words like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or judge not lest ye be judged. And Jesus did say these things, and these are important truths, but often He says things that really startle us, that push us back on our heels, and that's where we're going to focus our attention in the next 10 weeks. So let me just say I'm really glad you're here this morning. I know there's another worship service going on east of us a ways, um, but I'm really glad you're here and uh, if you are new to the faith, if you're curious about Christ, if you are, consider yourself a committed follower of Jesus, if you are a skeptic, uh, I want to encourage you to engage in this very important 10-week exploration. And I'm really glad you're here. And before we begin the message this morning, I'd like us to bow for prayer. So let us pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, calm our hearts and minds. Lord Jesus You surprise us, you startle us, you say things that just shake us. And Lord, we need to understand what they mean for us and what you intended for us. So Father, we ask this morning that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditation of each one of our hearts and that everything we say and do would be acceptable to you. So Holy Spirit, have free reign in every heart and every mind this morning gathered. Speak to us, transform us, encourage us, enlighten us, and change us. For Christ's awesome glory we pray. Amen. Well, when we think of the person of Christ, when we think of Jesus and what he taught, we often have lots of words in mind, but we have pictures that have been painted in the very depths of our hearts and minds. What picture comes into your mind when you think of Jesus? Well, I'm sure We all could answer that in many ways, but I ran into a story this week that made me laugh. Made me chuckle in great ways because a London reporter captured a story of an elderly woman in Spain. uh, And she thought she would sort of touch up a picture of Jesus. I don't know if you saw this, it went viral across the internet this last week. And uh, it was in Spain, and it was a fresco of Jesus in a restored church. And as they were working it in Spain, they found this fresco of this famous Spanish artist. It's really beautiful. I mean, it's faded, but it's really beautiful, this 19th century fresco of Jesus. Well, for whatever reason, she decided to sort of put her touches on it. And uh, this was her touch-up Jesus. (laughs) You know, my thought is, as a grandmother, she probably read Curious George too many times. What do you think? One of the interesting things was to read this story, and one of the reporters that was covering it said this. I'd love this. He said, The woman turned herself in at admitting causing damage when she realized, quote, it had gotten out of hand. <laughs> and then he adds, The woman who was not identified attempted to restore the work with good <laughs> intentions. Now, the story got not only viral uh, reach across the internet, but it had lots of responses. If you read all the responses, it's stunning. I, I had to just tell you a few of them, okay? And I just give you at least two or three. I mean, it's just tons of them. You might want to look at this story. But J.G., a young guy, wrote this. He said, I wonder what it would look like if this lady had bad intentions. That's good, isn't it? <laughs> Corey wrote these words. She says, she must really stink at Pictionary. And then another person said this so well. She said, I, I think this lady finished her bucket list at last. What do you think? <laughs> now, all of us, I would say, would cringe at this woman's touch-up of Jesus. But all of us have a picture of Jesus in our mind. And we cringe at the inadequacy of that picture. But if we are transparent in our minds, in our hearts, we do have an inadequ- inadequate picture of Jesus too. One that not only needs a touch-up, perhaps, but needs a major restoration. So this morning, as we enter into this series, we want to begin to gain a better picture, a more compelling picture of who Jesus is and what he taught and what it means to follow him. Now, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that the original Fabulous Four, the Fab Four of the first century, were the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all paint this amazing picture as they weave together intricately the stories of the first century as Jesus encountered this planet. But I want to suggest to you that Mark, the gospel writer Mark, perhaps has the most intricate and delicate painting of Jesus in his gospel. And I'd like you to turn there with me this morning as we start this series, The Gospel of Mark. Matthew, and then Mark, if you have your Bible with you. I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Now, before diving into this gospel, what I'd like to do is to set the literary landscape and the historical landscape of the gospel of Mark. Most scholars believe, and I agree with them, that this is the earliest gospel in the New Testament written most likely we are talking 58 to 60 bc or ad so if we do our math this is less than 30 years after jesus walked on planet earth this is very important to us in the 21st century because when we look back at history we want to have a credible eyewitness historical look of who jesus was and is and most scholars believe and i agree again with the majority here is that Mark actually knew the Apostle Peter. Mark was disciple by Peter, and his gospel is written in the transition when Peter was alive to after he died. So Mark bridges this time, and the importance is all the eyewitnesses, the teaching, Mark has the most credible historical painting of Jesus. It is something if we are going to get a picture of who Jesus really was and is, and what he taught and what it means to follow him, we must lock in with the gospel writers, particularly Mark. So when we come to Mark chapter 8, Mark is a brilliant author, and he arranges his 16 chapters. If you have an English Bible, you know there are 16 chapter divisions. Right in the middle, in chapter 8, at the midpoint of chapter 8, is Mark's watershed literary turning point that transitions the story around two burning questions that Mark has. These two burning questions are at the heart of his gospel. They are what he wants his readers to grasp, grapple with and he want, what he wants us to grapple with as well. Right now, as we come into the middle section of Mark 8, we find the intersection of these two burning questions They are going to frame our thought the rest of this morning and much of our trajectory in the 10 weeks ahead. What are those two burning questions the gospel writer Mark asks? First, the first question he asks and arranges his material in a brilliant literary structure is, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And he will tell us in particularly the first eight chapters He will unveil for us that this Jesus is no ordinary person. This Jesus, the atoms of the universe, respond when he speaks. He calms the storm with one Hebrew word, shalom, and everything stops. Wow. He heals the sick. He takes a little boy's lunch a couple of fish and loaves, and he feeds a multitude. So Mark has focused on this Jesus is not an ordinary person. Who is he? Now, when we come into chapter 8, he is going to begin to address the question in this transitional bridge, not only who Jesus is, but what does it mean to follow him? It's the big so what. And that's what we're going to be focusing on in this series. So let's begin raising these two questions that frame our thought this morning. Who is Jesus? Let's let's enter into the narrative of Mark chapter 8, okay? So if you have your Bibles open, in verse 27, we find Jesus walking with his disciples, heading north to Caesarea Philippi. It's perhaps a dusty road, and they're having a conversation, perhaps They're chit-chatting about the night's game before, the big game, or the headline news or the weather. I don't know what they're chatting about, but they're chatting. And what we need to understand is that Rabbi Jesus, for Rabbi Jesus, his school was always in session. Uh, I know if you're a student this morning or you've been in school recently, you love when school's over, right? You want a break. But when you hung around Jesus, school was always in session, Now, how many of you loved pop quizzes when you were in school or if you're in school now? Anybody? I hated those things. If you're a teacher or a professor, let me just tell you how much students hate, don't forget, pop quizzes. I wish they'd get rid of them because they put you on the spot, they're torture. But let me just say that Rabbi Jesus, brilliant Jesus, he uses a pop quiz, as he's making his way with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus, like a professor or teacher, says, Okay, today I have a surprise. <laughs> you love that word, right? It's pop quiz time, and there are two questions. The disciples are freaking out. The first question is a low ball question, it's the easy one. He says, Okay, guys, who do people say that I am? You know, what's the press? They just jump with the answer. They got this answer, right? Elijah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus pulls out the tough question. You know, when you have two questions at a pop quiz, that's, you know, you flunk that in a heartbeat, right? And he looks at his disciples. He says, question two, who do you say I am? And you can almost feel as they stop on the dusty path, this eerie silence. You've been in a class when a teacher asks a tough question. You don't know the answer. You shrink back in your chair, right? And you're hoping that some smart kid will answer the question or brave one. And all of a sudden, in this dead air moment, the smartest kid in the class speaks up Peter, or at least the bravest. And he says, I got the answer, I got the answer. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The Old Testament spoke of you and you are it. You are the anointed one. Wow. Peter must have been busting at his chest. I mean, he's like, I got it. But while Peter gets an A now, he's going to flunk in just a moment. All of a sudden, when the pop quiz is over, Rabbi Jesus says, class still in session, guys. And Jesus gives his disciples a bombshell. He drops it on them for the first time in the Gospel of Mark story. Jesus looks at his disciples as they're stopped right outside of Caesarea Philippi on a dusty road. And he says, guys... Path ahead for me is tough. I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to die a gruesome death. They're all thinking, but Peter can't handle it. Hearing Jesus' unthinkable words that the Messiah would die, that he would face a gruesome death, not a glorious coronation, was like taking a circle and a square and bringing them together. For Peter, it was unthinkable. And at this moment, Peter does the unthinkable. He pulls Rabbi Jesus aside, and he rebukes Jesus. The idea is, he says, Jesus, you're all wrong. Now, what would that be like? This is an awkward moment. It would be like me, at all 5'8 plus of me, going up to LeBron James and saying, LeBron, let me show you how to dung a ball. I mean, how unthinkable would that be? Yet Peter takes Jesus, the creator of the world, the most brilliant being that ever graced this planet, and says, Jesus, you're wrong. How does Jesus respond to this awkward moment? This is one of the most awkward moments in the entire Gospels. Brilliant Jesus pushes Peter back on his heels, but he seizes the moment and moves it from an awkward moment to one of the most teachable moments of all of the Gospel, Mark. And in that teachable moment that we're gonna look at in just a second, Jesus invites us with a startling invitation. This startling invitation follows a threefold trajectory in its development. Brilliant Jesus first says that the path of following me is a hard path. It's a hard path. Secondly, he says, this path has a hidden paradox. Hard path, hidden paradox. And then he builds this text His words to say, there is a high price of following me. But no, it's not, as we will see, following him that he focused on. It is the high price of non-discipleship. So Jesus' startling words follow this trajectory. He says, men, the guys around him, and the crowd that begins to gather, crowd, because he's like a rock star just outside of Caesarea Philippi. Everybody knows he's coming. So they lean in, they listen with every word. He says, following me is a hard path, there's a hidden paradox, and there's a really high price for not following me. Okay? That's where he goes. So first, let's look at the hard path. The hard path is found in verse 34. So if you have your Bible open, let's look at this text. The text says, And he, Jesus, Called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What we see here is that Jesus does not pull any punches at all. Jesus shoots it straight. He describes this path, if you'll notice the text. He describes this hard path using three imperatives, or non-negotiables. If you're looking at the screen, you'll notice, he says, if you want to come after me, he says, first, let that person deny themselves." He arranges his words in a construction in the original language that says, this is a decisive watershed moment in your life. Deny yourself. Secondly, non-negotiable too. Take up your cross. That's also a decisive act at a point in time. And then he says, and follow me. Not only decisively, but it is a continuous linguistic structure. So the structure of his language suggests that he invites his disciples to a hard path, one of self-denial, one of cross-bearing, and one of apprenticeship. Now, I want to encourage you, and in these 10 weeks, we will unpack more and more of this, but I want to encourage you in your time to read through these texts. This text is a rich one, but let me highlight a couple observations about these non-negotiables. First, this language of self-denial is a really big, important word here. We don't like that word, do we? Come on, be honest. The idea of self-denial is a radical call embedded in the linguistic structure, a decisive act, It changes the entire course of our life. Jesus is saying he is not just a good teacher. He is a fork in the road, and following him is a watershed decisive moment in your life and mine. I love how one New Testament scholar captures this. He says, those who wish to follow him must be prepared to shift the very center of the gravity of their lives. From self to reckless abandonment to the will of God. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. And when we hear those words in an indulgent culture, we all are that, right? We have magazines about self. We hear language over and over again to express yourself. Right? Be yourself. Suit yourself. The language of self-denial is not a very attractive invitation. It's not a popular thing to invite people to deny themselves. But it wasn't popular in Jesus' time either. We must keep this in mind. Jesus' original listeners would have gone, Huh? Because what we long for initially is to live a life of self-indulgence to self-absorption, self-reliance, self, self, self. self. It's interesting that before Jesus' physical incarnation in the world, the Greek philosophers and writers understood this. They understood the popularity of self-indulgence and self-absorption as the path to the good life and true and beautiful. But they also understood the peril of this path. One of the classic stories from ancient Greece is the story of Narcissus. You remember that story? It's a story of a man who looks in a pool, a reflective pool. And all he sees is a reflection of himself, but he doesn't recognize it's himself. But he becomes entranced with his own reflection and he ends up dying right there, fixed on himself. You remember that story? Even today, thousands of years later, we use the word narcissistic or narcissism to describe the toxicity of a life of self-indulgence and self-obsession. A life devoted, built on, and focused on self. And Jesus addresses this head on he addresses this most persistent and devastating heart idol of your life and mine. What is he saying? Jesus is not saying that we are to not love ourselves or we are not to be self-aware. What is he getting at? He's getting at the very idol of our hearts when self is at the center. When we hear self-denial in a religious context... We often think of some kooky cult or some middle ages guy sitting on a pole in the desert. But self-denial, as Jesus teaches, is not that at all. Self-denial and self-absorption are this choice of a life of putting God center or our self center. Jesus understands that all of us have an idolatrous Tendency to make ourselves central to our lives, to replace God with self as the focus of our life. The most perilous idolatry imaginably in the world, in your life, in mine every day, is the persistent and enticing idol of self. So, Jesus is saying. C.S. Lewis writes marvelously insightfully here. In his book called The Problem Pain, and this is what he says. It's a little longer, but I'd like us to dwell in here for just a moment because it's so truth packed. You with me? He says From a moment, the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, the terrible alternative of choosing God or self for the center is open to it. This sin is committed daily by young children and ignorant peasants as well as by sophisticated persons. I mean, I also add pastors and people like that. It is the fall in every individual life and in each day of each individual life, the basic sin behind all particular sins. At this very moment, Lewis writes, you and I are either committing it, about to commit it, or we are repenting of it. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus addresses head on the most perilous idolatry of your life and mine, and that is the idol of self. And he calls us for self-denial. But the second non-negotiable is to take up our cross. What does Jesus mean by that? For most of us, we think of a cross is something we place on a church or something around our neck. Beautiful jewelry. That's beautiful. It's nice. It's cool. It's awesome. But for Jesus using this metaphor of the cross, he was pulling out in the 1st century the most heinous instrument of capital punishment imaginable. We might think of it as the guillotine or the electric chair or the hangman's noose. Jesus' listeners understood what he was saying. That to follow him meant to give up our entire life. What Jesus is saying in this startling statement is that the image of the cross signifies a decisive and willful act, a total claim on the disciples' allegiance, his, his or her total surrender of their whole life to Jesus, body, soul, and spirit and everything we have. Eugene Peterson, as he often does, has a wonderful way of capturing this in his paraphrase. Listen to what he says. He says, calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said... Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. I like how Eugene says, you're not in the driver's seat, I am. So the question for the thoughtful listener of Jesus in the first century is the crowd pressed in around him on that dusty road. And the question for each one of us in the 21st century as we hear Mark's words recording of Jesus is this question. Why on earth would anyone say yes to Jesus' startling invitation? His hard path. Why? Jesus answers that question in the next verse. For in it we find a hidden paradox that we must grapple with this morning. Notice verse 35. Jesus says, for whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus takes a paradox and hits it over his listener's head. (laughs) What is a paradox? Let's just remember because it's very important Webster defines a paradox this way, the dictionary. It is a statement that at first glance seems contradictory, unbelievable, or even absurd. But upon greater reflection, it may actually be true. I'm reading this fascinating book lately. I downloaded it recently on my Kindle. It's a book that is taking our world by storm in the intellectual arena. It is a book on neuroscience of the brain. The author is a Nobel Prize winner. His name is Daniel Kahneman. The book's title is Thinking, Fast and Slow. It's a fascinating book. Kahneman tells us from his research as a psychologist, he's also a Nobel Prize winner in economics, pretty impressive, eh? He tells us that our brains have this tendency toward lazy, superficial thinking. (laughs) And we go, if we're transparent, amen? Someone said to me that As people, 5% of the time we think, 15% of the time we think we think, and 80% of the time we'd rather die than think. That's how we think. And Kahneman says in the research, the best research available is that the brain is integrated in this idea of a systems one-two integration. System one is like autopilot. We all have that, right? We drive home from work or school. It's like we just know it. We don't even think. It's just we're on autopilot. System one is autopilot. We do much of life on autopilot, and that's the brilliance of our design. But then every once in a while, our autopilot runs into something that makes it stop, like thinking of driving home and seeing an accident or something that makes us go, oh, that's out of norm. What is that? And then system two kicks in. It is a thoughtful engagement in deeper realities, in challenging realities. And as I've been reading Kahneman's research, I keep going back to brilliant Jesus, 2,000 years ago, brilliant Jesus, who created the world, created your mind and brain, who understands the world, understood how we were wired. He wired us this way. And brilliant Jesus uses parables and paradox to move us below autopilot superficial thinking and to bring us down deeper to the rich truths of reality. And this is where he is in Mark chapter 8. What he is saying, paradoxically, is those who surrender their whole life, who lose their life in complete devotion and loyalty to Jesus, safeguard their life in a deeper sense. They find it. And Jesus tells us that following him is a hard path, that on that path is a hidden paradox. And that path has a high price. But his focus is not on the high price of following him. Jesus' focus in this text is on the high price, unimaginably, of not following him. Not the cost of discipleship, which Jesus talks about. There's a cost to follow him. But he will tell us at the end of this text of the unimaginable price that a human being will pay by not following him and refusing his invitation. Look at the text, verses 36 to 38. Jesus says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? Now notice where Jesus goes. He goes to the future. He has just told them he is going to face a gruesome death. Now he paints a picture of his glorious future return. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man, that's a word for a Messiah, also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We are right, and Jesus talks in the New Testament about the cost of discipleship. Many of us experience this cost if we're willing to fully follow him. Some of that cost is rejection by peers at school or at work. The loss of a job, the loss of a pleasure, the loss of a dream, the loss of a relationship. Yes, often there is a cost to following Jesus. But what Jesus tells us in this text is that the cost of not following him is of the most unimaginable cost, not only now, in the life we miss out living now, but for all eternity. The language he uses is language of future judgment and a perilous eternity for those who refuse his invitation and refuse to follow him on the path to his cross. If you will notice in Jesus' words, and the English picks this up quite well from the Koine Greek, that Jesus weaves his thoughts about the high price around economic nuance. You'll notice in your English text the word profit and it bills to forfeit and so forth. But Jesus is picturing for his listeners' minds a scale, an economic scale. This is not a digital scale, okay? It is, remember those teeter-totter scales? Remember, we used to have to use those in chemistry lab way back. But imagine, what he's saying is imagine your life placed on a scale, On one side of the scale is all that the world offers. All of the pleasure you can imagine, all the riches, all the stuff, all the fame. Put it on one side. It's appealing and it has value. Jesus is not saying the material world is bad or that pleasure is all bad. Don't miss that. That is a tremendous error of how people interpret this text. He is comparing the relative worth of two things. And he's saying all that that has value, that is enticing and meaningful and significant and appealing, you put on one side of the scale. Then he says to his listeners, now take your life, one life, one person, put your life on the other side of the scale. And that life is a life of sacri- sacrifice, of following Christ, of self denial, of cross bearing and apprenticeship. You put one person, put your life on this side. And what happens to the scale? Poop! It's not even a slow drop. Because the weighty value of following Jesus. And the life of self-denial and cross-bearing and apprenticeship is so vastly more important and valuable, the others do not compare. Let's remember, Jesus was tempted to this very thing. Satan stood before him in the wilderness and said, here's the scale. You can have all this, 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 but that means you follow me. Jesus understood that equation. And he presents to us and his listeners a pro-con choice that all of us are confronted with. And Jesus is saying, my side of the scale is vastly weightier. Not only now, but forever. See, there's a perilous reality. And that is, some of us have convinced ourselves we think we can have it all. When in reality, we can lose it all. Not only for now, but for all eternity. There's a cost of following Jesus. There's no question about that. It can be popularity. It can be pleasure, relationships. I mean, you name it. Jesus doesn't hide his scars to win a disciple. He lays it out there. He's a straight shooter. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred by a Nazi noose because of his commitment to Christ, understood this. Pastor Dietrich uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He understood what Jesus is saying in this text. In this call to die, what we must not miss, listen carefully, brilliant Jesus gives us a paradox, and nestled within that paradox is another paradox. That paradox is that in dying, we truly live, and nestled within that is saving, is losing. I love the movie Braveheart. Hey Braveheart fans? (laughs) There's a line in this movie that is brilliant. And in this movie, there's this line, every man dies, not every man really lives. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is reminding us that there are two ways to die, but only one way to live. He is saying we can experience death by saving our life in some narcissistic self-absorption and then face the temporal emptiness that that will inevitably bring and the eternal perilous consequences as a result. Or we can experience death now by losing our life now in self-abandoned, cross-bearing, self-denying apprenticeship to Jesus and find true life, the life we are designed to live, the good, the true, and the beautiful life, not only now but for all eternity. Path of discipleship is a hard path. But nestled within it, it is a transformational paradox. And Jesus reminds us that there is an extraordinarily high cost to not being his disciple. So in the next 10 weeks, we are going to look at some really <laughs> challenging stuff that Jesus teaches. But two questions are going to be our constant companions. And that is, who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow him? Now, for initial reflection, let me raise three quick questions. I'd just like you to write them down. We're going to unpack them more later. Will you follow Jesus first? Will you say no to self-salvation projects? How are you trying to save yourself? By being good enough, smart enough, cool enough, rich enough? To follow Jesus is to say no to self-salvation projects. The good news of the Christian faith is that we can't do it on our own. Jesus did it for us on the cross. He paid the ultimate penalty through his atoning death on the cross and in his glorious resurrection. And it is a gift we receive. It is not something we can merit on our own. There's nothing we can do to merit it. Apostle Paul says, for by grace are we saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. Following Jesus means that we say yes to the gospel and no to self-salvation projects. Secondly, will you say yes to the cross life? Jesus doesn't offer us success, riches, gushy spiritual experience where we feel he's close to us all the time or gives us all the answers. Perfect health, pure popularity, Jesus offers us a cross. Uh, A fine book that is really a watershed book written by Philip Reeve, describes the shift of our modern world. It's called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Philip Reeve talks about our cultural reality when he says this. He says, Religious man was born to be saved. Psychological man was born to be pleased. Religious man was born to be saved. Psychological man was born to be pleased. Jesus never promises that we will always be pleased. He has come to save us. And he invites us to follow him to the cross. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life up for me. Will you embrace the cross life? Third, will you hang on when times are tough? Let's remember that the Gospel of Mark was written in the first century, to followers of Jesus Christ who are facing the most intense persecution just because they love Jesus, like so many millions and millions of brothers and sisters of us around the world are facing a hellish hell because they love Jesus. Under Emperor Nero, it was hell to pay for Christians, and they felt it. These words are not just profound words to us, but they're encouraging words. That following Jesus is worth it, even when we're persecuted for our faith. Will you hang on when times are tough? So our tendency is to throw in the towel of defeat. Jesus is saying, no, raise the white flag of greater surrender to me. The more you're surrender to me, the more victorious you are in the life I've called you to live, regardless of your circumstances. If you lose your life, you will fight. path of following Jesus is a life of ever-increasing submission to Him. It is the life we were designed to live. It is the life that is good, true, and beautiful. It's the life you and I have been offered by Christ. A very winsome Brit said this. His name was G.K. Chesterton. He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Will you follow Jesus? I'm committed to follow him. Will you follow him? Following Jesus is not just an individual journey. It is a collective one. And as we prepare to gather around the Holy Communion table this morning, we remember the cross life we're called to as we follow him to the cross. We remember that Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. This is our hope. This is our remembrance. And if you've decided to follow Jesus this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, I'd like you to stand with me. I mean, all, all to stand, but I'd like everyone to stand. And if you're a follower of Christ, I'd like you to follow with me in a liturgy of consecration in preparation to the Lord's table. I'm gonna lead us where it says leader, and we'll all respond as we prepare to come to the Holy Communion table. Let us confess our sins, for which we have done and what we have not done or left undone. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we humbly confess our sins. Let us embrace Jesus' cross, placing our complete trust in him. Messiah Jesus, we trust you as our Savior and Lord. Let us take Jesus' yoke, submitting our lives completely to him. Master Jesus, we will follow you as your apprentices. Let us be Jesus' church, loving the world as his heart, his hands, and his feet. Lord Jesus, we will be your church in the world. Let us pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.